Hello, and welcome to episode 122 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Perrin, historian and deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Camp Shelby. And with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Toady, except for this week. He's not. Uh, Bill isn't here today as he is recovering from minor surgery. He is fine. He is on the mend. We miss him and wish him well, and we'll see him more than likely next week. Uh, this week, we are delighted to have with us again, historian and buddy John Parshall, who is acting as co-host, whether he likes it or not, as well as commentary today. How are yep. you, John? I'm very well. Delighted to be here. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, we got a lot to talk about today, so we're going to we're gonna get right to it. Uh, the hectic and high stakes months, month of October 1942 is finally wound down and passed into history, and with it, the lives of nearly 400 Americans at the battles of Henderson Field and Santa Cruz, and an astonishing figure of nearly 3,500 Japanese lives at those same events. The Japanese have thrown their very best efforts at Guadalcanal in October, both ashore and offshore, and have come up short. The devastating defeat ashore, Battle of Henderson Field, was followed by a tactical victory, but strategic defeat, man, flip-flop, whatever you want to say, offshore at Santa Cruz and, left, and has left the Japanese in no better position than they were in August, just thousands of lives shorter. As November dawns, Guadalcanal is still a hotbed of activity. Fighting on the ground has eased off in intensity somewhat, but it is still a fairly constant struggle. Although nowhere near as bad as the previous several months have been, but the Japanese aren't done yet either. At sea, however, the Japanese are also not through with their efforts to both smash the American fleet and destroy Henderson Field. Uh, the Japanese will try several more times this month, specifically twice in back-to-back -back nights. The first of these epic naval clashes occurs on, of all dates, Friday the 13th. The confused and chaotic melee that follows will be known as the barroom brawl. All right, where do we start with a battle that has no <laughs> no recognizable track chart that's ever been made? Not a damn I, one. Yeah, and and there never will be. Um, I'd actually just just from the Japanese perspective, just to kind of set this up from where they're at. I mean, we we join the action here. the The second division, the Sendai division, has been defeated. Uh, in their battle there at this point, limping back through the jungle uh, along the, the aptly named Maruyama Road, which is nothing more than a path. Um, from the perspective of Rabal, the issue here is that we've got way too many troops on this island and not enough supplies. We've got a lot of starving people. Mm -hmm. And so it's becoming clear to the Japanese that what has to happen is we've got to figure out some way to get transport ships in here with not only new reinforcements, but importantly, supplies, food, shells, you know, you name it. And the only way to get transports in, they can't operate in that, you know, air envelope that Henderson Field imposes over this battlefield. And so we've got to be able to knock out Henderson for two to three days at least so that we can drive a convoy in here, unload that convoy, and get those ships back out uh, before Henderson resurrects itself. So that's sort of the backdrop uh, for the for the Japanese and the way that they're going to knock out Henderson is we're going to bring down some battleships and do what we did back in the middle of October. We're going to bombard this place and put it out of business. That's the game plan. That's the plan. <laughs> Plans, as they say, are all good and fine yep. until the shooting starts. And right. and and to put it in perspective, 
So, like you said, John, the Imperial Army had planned to reinforce, and the Navy had planned to reinforce Guadalcanal, and I got some figures on some of the people and things that they were going to bring. They had a large troop convoy that consisted of nearly 7,000 additional well-trained troops, uh, 31,500 artillery shells, and food for 30,000 men for 20 days. So, as you said, they were fully aware that they were, their people were starving. I mean, there's no other way to put it. They were starving to death. And um, anything that that floated during the daytime was going to come under attack from anything that flew off of Henderson Field. And to your point, you know, the only real time that Henderson Field was like severely damaged was when uh, was Haruna and uh, was it Congo came down, came down the slot and just plastered yeah shot the bejesus out of henderson field for an hour and a half the biggest bombardment that american troops have ever suffered in any war that they have been in Mm -hmm. yeah no doubt i mean you know if you talk to anybody who was there they remember that like it was yesterday life-changing experience for sure absolutely so that's that's what the japanese need to do again and those those battleships are going to be coming down from truck their main bastion in in the region up in the Caroline Islands. Uh, and yeah, they're going to be coming down and repeating that exercise. So before we get into the nuts and bolts, we're going to talk. So the, the Japanese are going to send two battle wagons down here. They're going to send Hiei and they're going to send Karishima down here. Yep. But that's not all they have in their arsenal in that general vicinity. Yeah. And, and this is, is an deal? area. Of, yeah. What is the deal? Uh, the honest answer is I don't know what the deal is because, uh, Kirishima and Hiei's sisters, uh, Congo and Haruna, are available. They actually are going to steam south uh, along with Admiral Kondo and his force. And they're going to maintain a position off of uh, Antong Java Atoll, which is actually an undersea atoll uh, north of the Solomon Islands. And they're going to hang off of there and, and not participate in the battle. Meanwhile, back at truck itself, you've got um, the battleship Mutsu, which is a 16-inch vessel, gun vessel, and then, of course, the Yamato, which is 18.1-inch guns, the largest battleship in the world, they are riding at anchor uh, there with Yamamoto aboard them. And so you, you really have to wonder here why the Japanese are unwilling, at the very least, to send uh, Congo and Haruna into this this formation as well that are at and sea at they are at sea yeah. and burning fuel oil you know loitering uh when they could have come south with the admiral a, a gentleman named abe abe hiroaki um but they don't and I, I i don't know the answer to why they they didn't do that i don't know that anybody knows that answer um there may have been fuel constraints the other possibility is that they thought that the waters of Iron Bottom Sound were just too constricted to operate four battleships in. They may have thought that four battleships was simply overkill. And, you know, if I bring two battleships, the Americans are going to clear out of the sound and let me do my thing. They're not going to want to have to stand up to me. But for whatever reason, the Japanese lose this opportunity to bring truly overwhelming firepower to this action. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to throw out there that it was a fuel issue, possibly, especially with Yamato, because she's a, she's a fuel hog anyway. But for sure. But if you've got two other battle wagons at sea already, right, that kind of throws that out of the 
window yeah. at least at least you know for those two vessels those two. Yeah. yeah yeah and at, at this point you know both the army and the navy have come to the conclusion that this the guadalcanal even though it doesn't look or smell anything like our pre-war doctrine uh describes a decisive battle to look like that this is the decisive struggle in the pacific at this point and so theoretically then we should be committing every asset we have to winning this struggle and yet here again we see uh the japanese sort of being a day late and a dollar short when it comes to truly committing the levels of force that they need to because they've got a window of opportunity here I mean, if you look at the sort of the narrative arc of this battle or the campaign, I guess I would say around Guadalcanal, sure. I would argue that, you know, late September, but really mid-October to mid-November, that's Japan's window of opportunity to just knock our lights out and yep. win this thing. They have superiority and heavy surface assets if they're willing to commit them, but they're not. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't get it, and and it's very similar on land too, you know. So, and this is not the first time this happens. I mean, if you look at um, in August of Tenaru River, you know, Ichiki, right. he 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 has his second echelon coming, but he declines to wait for it. Now, granted, that was an individual commander's decision. Yeah. Obviously, it didn't turn out very well for him. Not that it would have been either way, but regardless, that's just the first, you know, indication that this is a repeating thing. It happens again in September at the Ridge. Yep. You know, if, 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 um, I can't think of the general's name. Um, just, thank you. Yeah. It was in my mind, just lost it. If he waits or at least doesn't throw his forces out in penny packet sections on the flanks and throws everything at the middle. Yeah. They're Who probably, knows? yeah, they're probably on top of that airfield, you know, I mean, the yeah, right. on by their teeth, but yep. I mean, it, it just keeps going on and on and on or they have the forces at hand, but they don't commit put them more than, yeah, they don't put them, yeah, where put them or put them where they need them. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's the backdrop. But the, the Americans now know Turner Turner is running a convoy in himself and the Americans are getting wind of the fact that the Japanese are now bringing down a battleship force composition unknown. But we know that there are battleships coming south to Guadalcanal. The composition of that force, it's two battle wagons, as you said, Karishma and Hie, uh, one light cruiser and 11 destroyers. And the light, light cruiser, I believe, is a Nagara. And, Nagara. And, there's, and then there's you know a handful of destroyers with it, too. So, I mean, it's a it's. Not the most powerful force, force, but it's pretty damn big. You know, it's yeah, got a lot of and, a lot of guns. And in, yes, and in terms again of heavy weapons, uh, you know, handily outnumbers anything that we can put in its way. I mean, we're looking at 16 14 inch rifles at this point, and eleven destroyer loads worth of long lance torpedoes. That's a lot mm -hmm. of boom boom. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of uh, hull ripping capability there for sure. Uh, you talked about Turner's convoy that he's sending. And of course, this is your your friend, Richmond Kelly Turner. <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say a good thing about R Richmond Kelly Turner at this point. I mean, does he does make there. the decision that you know I'm gonna strip every escort off of my resupply convoy I can, and we are are actually gonna stand here and fight. Um, so good mm -hmm. on him for that. Yeah, I can be fair minded. Yeah. You know? <laughs> He says there's two separate convoys that he sends down there, and they're carrying about 5,000 troops and supplies and various and sundry things that are coming along with them. Um, and as you alluded to, it's escorted by American, mostly American cruisers and destroyers. Uh, 
So thanks to the intelligence reports that the United States are getting, is getting, um, as you said, they know that the Japanese are coming, that they're pre preparing to reinforce Guadalcanal yet again. Uh, they're bringing some big ships down here, some big assets down here. So the convoy is stripped of their escorts, as you just said, and they've got two missions, the, the escorts. One, to make sure that that convoy gets to Guadalcanal and unloads their troops, and two, intercept any force that's coming down here. Now, it's they are fully aware, they being the United States, that the Japanese are bringing battleships to the party. Yes. And we ain't got none, at least. We ain't got none. Right here, anyway. Yeah. So the guy that's in charge of this surface unit here is a guy named Admiral Daniel Callahan. Uh, Callahan had served previous to this um, as basically the aide or the uh, deputy for uh, Gormley at one time, uh, right when the, bit, when the campaign first started. Now, this is his one of his first sea combat actions. This is his first sea combat action. Um, and he first is, and last. <laughs> for, yeah, first yeah. and last, exactly. And he is chosen as commander of this task force. And I, I have a little bit of an issue with this. I actually have a lot bit of issue with this, to be perfectly honest. Uh, he, he's chosen over Norman Scott because he's only fi he's 15 days senior. And now I understand Correct. fully that that was the Navy way, that if you are senior by two hours that you take command. However, yeah. Norman Scott fought and won a night surface battle at Cape Esperance just the month before, whereas yep. Daniel Callahan has never heard never. a shot fired in anger. Yep. And, you know, we could debate, and I'm sure we will, as to what would have happened or could have happened had Scott been in charge as mm -hmm. opposed to Callahan. But the fact that Callahan is in charge, I think, leads a lot to what happens here in the next, you know, the next few minutes as we're going to talk. What yeah. is your uh, what is your opinion on that? Well, we are going to debate about that. I, I, I do think that you're right, that the Turner could have been a little more flexible and, and might have said, you know, <laughs> this gentleman here, um, Scott, is is actually combat experience and I'm going to tap him on the shoulder and you know, sorry, Daniel, you, you'll have to wait your turn. Um, I don't know that that actually would have made any difference in the battle. And, mm -hmm. and you do see a lot of ink spilled in a lot of books. People second guess that decision as if, you know, putting Scott in command is going to, you know, somehow magically reverse or improve uh, the outcome for the Americans. And I, honestly, as we've been talking about an email, I just don't see it. Right. I don't see it. I think things unfold a little bit differently. Yeah. In in terms of maybe starting the way things start and we'll get to that as the battle unfolds we we can talk about yeah. that but I agree yeah. with you I don't think that, that the end results really matter unless Scott decides he wants to engage from range uh, on which these is, jet, which I don't think he would have done. I mean he he's he's not stupid, you know. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard mm -hmm. to say a lot. But the bottom line here for our audience is uh, if you've got a force of heavy cruisers and, you know, one six-inch gunned light cruiser, you can't get into a medium-range engagement with, mm -hmm. with Japanese battleships. You're just going to be blown out of the water. Absolutely. Trent Hone, in his book, Learning War, makes the argument that uh, based on interwar wargaming at the War College, there was a scenario that basically demonstrated that if you've got a pair of heavy cruisers if you can get those units within 
closer than 6,000 yards, uh, they have a slight firepower advantage over a single Japanese battleship, which again, from a mental modeling standpoint, uh, seems to indicate that the only way to make this battle successful for the Americans is to get in close, like really close. And it seems that that is the model that ends up influencing Callahan for this battle. Although he leaves no written battle plan, he tells essentially nobody that we know of what his plan is. There is one remembrance from a crewman aboard the San Francisco who overhears a snippet of conversation between Callahan and uh, Cass and Young, who's the captain on board the San Francisco. And Cass and Young says, this is basically suicide. And Callahan replies, yes, it is. I know, but we have to do it. So <laughs> that's about all we know about, you know, Callahan's model for this, for this battle plan. But it seems to be, I got to get within slingshot distance of the enemy and I've got to disable their battleships with short range gunfire. Slingshots like spitball. That's more, more yeah, appropriate. Right. But, you know, and that that's something you could fault Callahan with. And I'm not here to crucify Daniel Callahan. I mean, the man did, a, in my opinion, did a good job. He probably could have done a maybe a little better job if he had let his people know what, what it is he wanted to do. And that's right. my big thing is that he didn't tell anybody. I mean, no, you know, he didn't. That remembrance of that that crewman aboard Frisco may have happened. But having done a lot of oral histories in my life, that doesn't necessarily mean that it did. I absolutely agree with that. You know? Yeah, that that may be a very ex post facto kind of remembrance. You know, we just mm -hmm. don't know. What we do know is that a lot of the crewmen on board the American ships as dusk is settling over Iron Bottom Sound are, uh, as one Atlanta crewman said, it was it was hard to keep from shaking because mm -hmm. you knew what was coming down on you. Yeah, and that's the thing. They do know, and but the also the Japanese also know that that they yes. are, or at least they think they know that there is an American surface force in the sur battle surface force in the area. Uh, there's a gentleman on the island of Guadalcanal named Lieutenant Commander Mitzi. He uh, observes the American convoy unloading on uh, the 12th of November. They, the convoy obviously does get to Guadalcanal and loads their cargo. Yeah. Um, he sends a message to Combined Fleet Headquarters that says that the surface force of three battleships, three cruisers, and 11 destroyers are off Longa. Well, obviously this is an inaccurate right report but yeah it's a known thing now that there's at least some american surface forces off of lunka point yeah um, the japanese uh get the message admiral ugaki gets a message he surmised that the surface force would probably try and intercept the japanese the following night which of course they do uh, however in a staff meeting it was stated that the americans would quote go away as usual and Abe's force was not notified of the American presence. What that? What what's that? That man. <laughs> yeah, that's that's just uh, really maddening. Although I've read other accounts that Abe did did hear evidence that there was an American surface force there. But yes, he was not expecting opposition, mm -hmm. and we have evidence of that by the fact that it's known that the 14-inch guns on both of his battleships were loaded with high-explosive bombardment shells yep. rather than armor-piercing. So you can think of the, the ready ammunition, if you will, uh, that was already in the hoists was inappropriate for fighting surface warships. Although, to be quite honest, 
um, a 14-inch bombardment shell against something like an American destroyer or even a heavy cruiser will still do a heck of a lot of damage. And so, you know, but yeah, the bottom line is that Abe is not expecting opposition. He he thinks that the Americans are probably going to, are not going to be there when he shows up. This mm-hmm. is a crucial failure. Yeah. And well, there's a lot of failures on both sides, really, as we'll get to. Yeah. So the force that Mitzi actually sees is certainly not the force that he reports. The actual American force consists of two heavy cruisers, three light cruisers, and seven destroyers, which is a fairly sizable American yeah. surface force, especially for November 1942. That's yeah. a, it's a pretty good amount of steel there in the waters, but it damn sure ain't any battleships. The two cruisers yeah. that we're talking about here are San Francisco and USS Portland. Those are the two eight-inch gun cruisers. And then the light cruisers are Atlanta, Juno, and our old friend USS Helena under Gilbert Hoover. Yeah. And Helena is a bruiser, uh, uh, just one of these big 15, six-inch guns with, you know, power ramming and the whole schmear. I mean, this this cruiser is is a buzzsaw, frankly, at, mm-hmm. at short range that can put a lot of shells in the air. Um, Juno and Atlanta, completely different animals, almost glorified destroyers, really. Um, but they do have a tremendous number of five inch 38s on them and can put a lot of lead in the air as well. Primarily anti-aircraft cruisers, but at short range against surface targets, they can really smother them. But they also, they've got a glass jaw. They can't take much in the way of damage, as that's, we're going to see. That, that's key, man, is that it, is it they were they were essentially, as you said, they were very, very large destroyers. And and the fact that their armor was paper thin, yes, you know, it just, it, it seals both of their fates. Yet, there are several of their class that survived the war, but they don't yeah. get into a scrape like this, man. No. They do not. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, before we get into the shooting here. Let, let's yeah. talk about uh, radar. Yeah. So radar is something that is going to play big into this, and it'll play huge into the battle that comes the following night on the 14th of November with mm-hmm. the battle wagons. But radar is something that you know we talked about uh, on our uh, Bill and I talked about on our episode about Cape Esperance that, that Norman Scott was not necessarily a believer in radar, as a lot of his generation were not. But after Cape Esperance, he he's a convert. <laughs> yes, yeah. he's like yeah, it's the stuff. It very well may yeah. be useful right. at some yeah. point. Uh, Daniel Callahan is hasn't just gotten like, the, yeah he hasn't read the memo. Um, no. So, no. and as a result, Callahan ends up hoisting his flag in San Francisco, which is appropriate in an old school mode of thinking, and that. San Fran is one of the two biggest ships that he has under his command, but unfortunately, she has an older model radar on mm-hmm. her on her foremast, uh, as opposed to Helena, which has one of the more modern 10-centimeter SG search sets, which would have given him a much better uh, view of the battlefield. And we know that Lloyd Mustin, uh, who's an, a gunnery officer aboard the Atlanta, a guy who goes on to make flag rank, you know, States after the war that uh, had Callahan known what he was about, he would have uh, hoisted his flag in a ship that had SG. But yeah, it doesn't end up making that decision. And as a result, he's going to have much poorer situational awareness as this battle unfolds. If, if any situational awareness as the battle unfolds, I mean, let's be yeah. real. 
Well, um, let's talk about his battle plan. You, you alluded to it, alluded to it in the beginning, but yeah. let's actually talk about it. You know, we don't know exactly what his battle plan was per se, because he never told anybody, yeah. which is, you know, inexcusable in my opinion. But what do you surmise that his, his plan was? Okay, and, and I'm just going to say straight up here that my thinking on this has changed profoundly over the last 10 years. And it's that it's due to Trent Hone's work on this matter, which mm-hmm. I think is insightful. Again, based on interwar wargaming, I think that Callahan is being influenced by that. And he realizes that yeah, the only way he can win this battle is to get his pair of heavy cruisers to within, you know, single digit thousand yards of one of those Japanese battleships and knock it out somehow. The only way to do that, unfortunately, is to, you know, drive his formation essentially into the middle of the Japanese formation. I'm not going to fight uh, a Cape Esperance kind of battle with a linear gun line, uh, you know, standing off the of team. Yeah. yeah, I can't do that. I've got to get in here and actually melee with these people. That so so in the battle when Callahan ends up broadcasting to all ships, you know, give them hell. We want the, the big, big ones. ones. Trent Hone would argue that's the battle plan. We want the big ones, yeah. you know, that's about it yeah. in a nutshell. Um, so, you know, I'm absolutely in agreement with you that he at least could have had the courtesy to let the skippers of the other ships know, you know, you may not want to tell this to your crewmen, you know, that we're going to close to slingshot range here, but yeah, they needed to know what the, what the drill was. I would also argue that if that actually was his battle plan, that he picked an inappropriate formation to execute it with because yes. he does end up coming into this uh, fight with a linear formation. That's about six miles long. Um, and it would have been more appropriate to be operating his ships, at least to have his destroyers in separate formations. Um, you know, maybe more of a, an arrow kind of formation rather than a linear formation because you know, the, the ships in the rear of my line are going to be very late to the party. And they I need are. to be, yeah, and they are. And I need to be putting as much firepower on the target in the first few minutes of this engagement as I possibly can. So, yeah, I, I, I'm not saying that it was a brilliant battle plan, I, I, but I'm saying that his instincts at least were correct. I've got to get really, really close to the Japanese. Yeah. And and the fact that you said that, or, you know, the, the, the line is, that very thing it's a line and in the rear of that formation you've got a ship like juno and she's not at the very rear but she's way back there and she doesn't engage until the battle is well underway because she's not within range. well she is within range but she's not within close range she can't see exactly and if you can get a ship like that with those five inch 38s that are just ungodly they yeah. can fire that fast. We talked about her at Santa Cruz, the amount of lead that that thing put up in the air. And granted, she's firing AP or at the very least, you know, HE up into the superstructures, which is what they do. Yeah. But you want that lead flying fast. So you need those ships. At, if maybe not in the lead, you don't want them in the van, but you want them close together to where they can get in there and just unleash hell all at one second, all at one time. Right. Right. So anyway, yeah, they didn't want to get. No, but you know it's something interesting to, to to note too that that you know getting a cruiser or destroyer or whatever the hell the case may be up so close to a battleship 
it's a perfect point that it does negate the vast majority of their firepower because right. 14 inch guns and, and double turrets like these battle wagons or any, any, you know, triple turrets on the American, they can only depress so far. Yeah. And by that, I'm, yeah. And by that, I mean, you know, if they're so close to where the big guns can't get their barrels down to shoot at them, then yeah. all that really is, is it's a huge vessel with a lot of secondaries on it because if yeah. you can't use the big guns, they're not going to do you any damn good. Yeah. So it makes sense. Although, yeah, these these battleships do have pretty powerful secondary oh, armament sure. as well, uh, as sure. we're going to discover. So, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So, the night is literally. <laughs> if this is Callahan's plan, it couldn't have been on a better night. It's a moonless night. Yes, it is black, black. Satan's heart. It is just yeah, absolutely horrible. And there's there's rain clouds mm -hmm. uh, as well. So there's periodic squalls. Um, in fact, some of those squalls are so violent that as the, the Japanese force is coming down, they can't see, you know, past the windows practically on, on these ships. Briefly, the Japanese uh, reverse course because the squalls are so heavy and then come back around to to head for Iron Bottom again. And that's going to end up sort of throwing off the timing of, of when Callahan was expecting them to arrive. The other thing that ends up happening is with those various maneuvers, the Japanese force becomes pretty dispersed. Mm -hmm. And Abe, standing on the bridge of Hiei, doesn't really have a good idea of where uh, his own ships are relative to his flagship because his formation has been screwed up. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no moon, no stars, um, occasional growling thunderstorms rolling through the area. It is a, a very ominous uh night of dark portents i guess mm -hmm. i would say <laughs> yeah it, it it definitely sets up to be something that's going to be kind of sinister if you will yeah um we talked about the american battle line and uh, let me just lay this out for people who want to know in the lead in the van was cushing was a destroyer mm -hmm. destroyer laffy destroyer sterrett destroyer o'bannon uh, followed by light cruiser Atlanta, San Francisco, Portland, Helena, Juno, Aaron Ward, Barton, Monson, and Fletcher. So that's basically yeah. well, that that's not basically that is how they went in the battle, and then once the yeah. firing starts, six a six mile long linear formation. Yeah, yeah. big. And the Americans long. start you know picking up signals, uh, the SG radars in this formation, and and you know I know Helena has one, which is mm -hmm. the other ships that have them I'm, I'm not recalling that off the uh, top of my head Atlanta, see atlanta had sc atlanta no she she had sc i think she had the, okay. the previous generation i think juno had sg but mm -hmm. helena oh fletcher the destroyer fletcher okay. fletcher and uh aaron ward both had sg radars too so because right. fletch was this is fletcher the fletcher class it's the lead ship yes. the fletcher class destroyer so she right. was brand new out brand of the new. yard yeah so she had yeah. the the hottest dope and the hottest material there right um at the but very least at this point yeah i mean helena is the heavy unit that has oh, the sure. best view of this battlefield and uh unfortunately and that's not going to really uh influence callahan's movements much but yeah the americans start getting returns off of japanese ships coming into the sound at about 01 30 yep um at a, at a pretty fair distance the japanese have no clue that there's an american formation in the sound at this point uh, even their extremely well-trained uh, lookouts are not able to penetrate this murk because they got nothing. I got no moon. I got no stars. I have no, you know, source of illumination uh, mm. whatsoever. So, yeah, they're blind coming into this thing. 
Talking about Helena and her radar, she, you're right. At 0130, at 27,000 yards distance, um, Helena's radar starts picking up two distinct Japanese formations. Now, the formations are kind of ragged, but there are two distinct Japanese formations here, or formations. One assumes them to be Japanese. Formations that are showing up on those radar screens. Um, Helena relays this information to Callahan, who essentially ignores it. He yeah. he doesn't, and at the very least, even if he's wanting to get in close, he should have at least listened and go, "Oh, okay, so this is how, yeah. this is what it's looking like." Okay, these guys are here and these guys are here, but he doesn't even do that. No, um, he's relying on visual lookouts, which is the old school way of doing things and doing things. And he's using these guys that are up in the van on USS Cushing on the destroyer Cushing, Cushing way up in, in particular. In, in, yeah. yeah. I, I saw him radioing up to my van destroyer and saying, "What are you seeing?" And you know, they're frankly seeing. Pretty much that what the the Japanese lookouts are seeing, which is nothing, <laughs> yeah. you know. So yeah. yeah. So back aboard Helena, as the radar picture is consistently developing, Captain Gilbert Hoover, who we'll hear about here in a little while, um, was beginning to get quote highly irritated <laughs> at at the unquote at yes. the fact that Callahan was basically ignoring the reports yeah. that the radar is giving him. Now, again, this is Gilbert Hoover. It's the same guy who's at Cape Esperance aboard the same ship yeah. who was looking at his radar screen. And is the famous quote, you know, is that uh, an ensign in the navigational plot turns around and looks at what are we going to do? Boredom. Boredom. You know? yeah. <laughs> Classic quote. <laughs> and you've got, yeah. You've got the same, you know, general uh, situation kind of coming up here as well, you know, yeah. Um, the Americans make a course correction uh, and begin moving their formation due north. And we don't know if that's, you know, to cross the T. It doesn't seem like it was. But the the end result is that now the American formation as this battle, you know, is starting to come to its culmination is essentially aiming itself into the heart of the Japanese formation. Yep. Like a spear right through the heart. But but yeah. the thing the thing is, is the range, as we talked about, is dropping from twenty seven thousand yards on the radar to 10,000, to 5,000, to four, and in some instances closer than that. Yes. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's terrifying. I'm sorry. It is terrifying. terrifying. And, you know, think about from the perspective of, of a, a participant in this battle, I mean, you've got two groups of warships that are now moving towards each other at over 60 miles an hour. Once, mm -hmm. once they kick into battle speed in pitch black, you know, so, Yes, the the range wheels on the rangefinders are winding down really, really fast, and I think mm -hmm. it's 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 easy for us, you know, sitting in an armchair at eighty years removed, to sort of say, "Well, Callahan should have done this." This situation is dynamic; it is changing very, very quickly because, again, these two formations are at pretty high speed as they are coming towards each other, and once a situation like this sort of, you know, spirals out of control. You you can't get your your hands back around it from a perceptual standpoint, if you right. will. And I, yeah, Callahan has no idea what's going on here. And and it's important to note that you know you said as, as the formations are coming into one another, the Americans are still with still holding a battle line. Yeah. And just because it's twenty seven thousand yards from Helena, does not mean that it's twenty seven thousand yards from Cushing. From Cushing, you're talking four thousand yards or yeah. less. Right. And, and remember, at 0130, Helena's radar picks up 27,000 yards distant targets. Ten minutes later, 
at 0140, Cushing reports, USS Cushing, reports to Callahan that, quote, a ship is crossing bow from port to starboard range 4,000 yards maximum. Right. Then another passes and another passes and another passes. Yep. Callahan still holds fire here. Right. And it's about this time, it's a 0143, that uh, Japanese destroyer Udachi uh, finally detects that there are enemy vessels ahead of them, radios to Abe on uh, Hiei that, you know, we've got company here. But again, because his formation has become so dispersed, Abe doesn't know where Udachi is relative to his own ship and declines to believe uh, those reports, at least initially, it then becomes clear to the Japanese, oh my God, yeah, there actually are warships here. And now there's a scramble happening in the turrets of these two battleships. We got the wrong ordnance loaded uh, in in here. You know, we got to scramble and bring those shells back down the hoists, put APC back up. Here's another bad decision on the part of uh, Abe. I'll tell you what, the quickest way to reload those guns with the appropriate shells is to shoot them. (laughs) Exactly. Unload your bombardment shells through the muzzles and, uh, you know, then we'll bring up the proper ordinance. But, yeah, there's there's chaos going on in the Japanese formation at the at this point as well. Abe is not thinking clearly either. It's not, and it's not as easy, you know, that's a, that's a perfect point. The quickest way to unload those rounds is to fire them because it's not as easy as just putting it back up on the wall and getting another one off the wall. It doesn't work like that yeah, in a battleship. Yeah. It does, it does yeah. in a destroyer, but yeah. it does not work like that when you got, you know, almost two tons of warhead here. Yeah. These, these shells weigh, I believe 1,485 pounds a piece. And so, yeah, it, <laughs> it's, it's a big deal to send them back downstairs, you know? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it, it's not, it's yeah. not like that so at 0147 uh callahan's formation is is or what formation there is it's falling apart because yes. at this point now the formation as you so eloquently put it, it's like a spear right through the heart of the japanese formation and individual skippers are maneuvering their ships so they don't collide with the yes, enemy so this line is just doing this it's doing this that's yeah. right at a J- and there's a famous line here that I want to say it's so bad, but I do it. Ah, so <laughs> a Japanese searchlight, boom, switches on it's in the middle one. of this inky blackness. Yes. Probably they, you know, I've, I've written, you may be, you may correct me on this, but it, I believe it was from Hie because it was very high. Yes. It was way up there. Pierces the night focuses directly on USS Helena. <laughs> yep. Just ahead, another searchlight pops on, probably from Akatsuki, Japanese destroyer, focuses directly on USS Atlanta. Aboard Atlanta, Captain Jenkins, the captain of the USS Atlanta, gave the pre-war order to, quote, counter-illuminate. His his gunnery officer, who was a younger (laughs) gentleman by the name of Lieutenant Lieutenant Commander William Nickerson, hears this, counter-illuminate, hears this and shouts into his headphone, quote, F that open fire. Exactly. One of the most eloquent <laughs> quotes of this entire campaign. Absolutely. Counter illuminate my ass. Let's yeah. I can again I can see the targets here. Yeah, yeah we know yeah. what to do. That, so yeah. Boom. Game game on, yeah, you know, it, at this point. And the Americans are 
obviously very pent up at this point. And so as soon as uh, the first shot rings out, the whole American formation just unloads, you know, on anything that they can see. So the range that Helena was shooting at uh, Akatsuki is the one that she theoretically, that's the theory that she opens fire on. The range was between 600 to 1,000 yards. 600 yards. 600 yards. Yeah, this is... This is just crazy. Dude, that's right. Uh, that's, again, that's medium rifle range. Yeah. I mean, for, for our viewers, uh, you don't do naval battles at 600 yards. This is, this is insane. Um, insanely close range. And in some cases, yeah, the American ships aren't going to be able to, to fire into the superstructures of these Japanese battleships because their guns won't elevate far enough to do it. It's just, it's nuts. So... so you you said that um you know when we were talking back and forth via email before this and and other times we were saying that you know this is without pair in terms of mass confusion and chaos yeah. it's it's just it's yeah. a mess you know it's a it's a mess and actually you know as a naval historian and someone who takes a lot of pride in his maps and you know when i do a map of battle i want to know that my track chart is as accurate as I can get it in terms of where these individual warships are maneuvering relative to each other, this battle honestly is almost freeing because there is no accurate track chart of this battle. There will never be an accurate track chart of this Mm -hmm. battle. And, uh, you know, if I, if I can just read you a a passage from my manuscript here, that's just, yeah. Um, that this engagement demands that the historian simply drop the pen of narrative realism and pick up an impressionist paintbrush. The accounts from both sides of this battle are so conflicting that no definitive narrative exists or ever will exist of who hit whom or even who shot at whom. Um, Within a few minutes, the tactical formation of both sides had devolved into roughly the same organization as if a child had taken 27 model warships and dumped them into a wading pool. That's what we're dealing with here. Yeah. It's ink, ink, black night. You have warships whipping past each other again at combined speeds of over 60 miles an hour. You know, somebody will loom up out of the darkness, train your barrels as rapidly as possible, fire whatever you can. And within a minute or two, they disappear back into the inky blackness, never to be seen again. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just incredibly chaotic and short engagement windows, torpedoes whipping through the water, star shells, searchlights. I mean, it is it is absolute chaos. You know, as I was trying to, keyword being here, try, trying to formulate my talking points for this very episode and i've read about this battle for years and years and years and years and years it actually physically gave me a headache as yeah. i was trying to to figure out how how we want to try and tell this story in some sort of cohesive manner it's virtually yeah. impossible so yeah. it is impossible frankly so we're, we're just going to hit the highlights yeah we're going to do the best we can here so as the first theoretically the first american ship to fire the atlanta uh, when she when she opens up she immediately becomes you know like a like a 
like a moth to flame, man. I mean, everybody yeah. in the Japanese formation is going to shoot at this thing because she's they opening know where up. She, yeah, they know where she is yeah. now. And it's not like a boom. And then, you know, it's like boom, 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 boom. And they open yeah. up. Lloyd Mustin, you were talking about, um, he's visually watching his shells. They're this close. He's visually watching his five-inch shells splash in the water around the Japanese destroyer, what again is presumed to be Akatsuki. He then calls in corrections and watches his shells just walk right into this destroyer yeah. and starts chewing her alive. And yep. what are there, 16 five-inch? Five yes. Inch yeah, both both Atlanta and Juno are carrying 16 uh, five-inch guns. The, the later models of this cruiser will take it down to 12 uh, for stability purposes, the two wing turrets really didn't contribute all that much. But yeah, these early model Atlantas have got a lot of firepower. And again, this is a weapon that in bursts can put out between 16 and 20 rounds per barrel per minute. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine that these American gunners are pretty pent up at this point. So yeah, there's a lot of shells uh, in a very short amount of time. The problem for Atlanta, of course, is because the formation is already disintegrated. Um, not only is she on the receiving end of Japanese fire, but she's out of position relative to other American ships in the formation. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, she ends up taking shell fire from the Americans as well. She does. And, and you know, it's it's one of the catastrophes. One of the one of the friendly fire is always, you know, as they say, friendly fire isn't isn't it isn't. And this is this is one of those occasions, you know, because. As the first to fire, you know, she opens up on what is presumed to be Akatsuki. Helena also does the same. Frisco also does the same. And then everybody starts shooting in Atlanta. And she takes a pretty hard lick, like within minutes of, yeah. of opening. And God knows who hit her. You know, nobody knows. Well, yeah. Um, on the Japanese side, we don't on know. The on the Japanese side, but we know on yeah. the American side, yeah. On the American side, we absolutely do. Absolutely. Um, each of these cruisers uh, in their shells have a specific dye color uh, mm -hmm. to help the spotting during daylight engagements. And so mm -hmm. um, after the battle is concluded, uh, it's noted that uh, some of the hits that are on the starboard side of the ship uh, have green dye which is San Francisco's die. Yep. So it, it's pretty clear that Admiral Callahan's flagship ends up pasting Norman Scott's ship. Uh, and, and it also seems from the accounts that Callahan is aware of this, yes. uh, be becomes aware, yes. orders fire to be checked briefly. Um, they shift to new targets, but yeah, it's too late at that point. You know, you think about eight inch gunfire against a cruiser as small as, as Atlanta it just does terrible damage to her. So she drifts, she, she doesn't lose power, but she gets hit and she drifts, as you say, and just to give the, the viewer or listener a, a, a visual, she hits, she gets hit. She loses way. She doesn't lose power at this point. She loses way. And she literally drifts towards the back end of the formation. Cause you got to remember she's ahead of San Francisco in yes. the line, such as it is. Yep. She's ahead. She drifts into San Francisco's field of fire. And at that point, Frisco theoretically is actually aiming at a target that is beyond USS Atlanta. Yep. And as Atlanta comes into view, and I mean, you're talking again, you're talking close range and you're talking seconds. It's yes. not like she's drifting and it takes her five minutes to drift. You're probably talking, you know, anywhere between 30 seconds to a minute, maybe, yeah. maybe might not even have been that long. Right. 
And Frisco unleashes at least two full broadsides right into the superstructure of USS Atlanta. And it just obliterates. Yeah. Just, just about, her. yeah, just annihilates just about everybody in that area. And you're a hundred percent right. And that Callahan more than likely saw it because yep. he immediately issues an order over uh, TBS that says cease firing friendly ships, cease firing yes. friendly ships. Yes. So it's, it's, painfully obvious that he watched those two salvos just get pumped right into Atlanta. Yeah. And kills Norman Scott. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that, yeah, that is, that, I, I can't even imagine what was going through that man's head at that. Calendar. Yeah. You know, no, that's, that's, that's gotta be a, a terrible feeling. And so and you, you can't, you know, there's going to be people who watch this, listen to this, go, what was his fault? No, I don't, it isn't. I mean, to a point it could be because he didn't issue orders, but you know, as we've said a hundred times, when the shooting starts, all plans go out the window, man. And this yeah. is one of those occasions that they just didn't see her until it was too late. Yeah. And again, the engagement windows are so tight and the engagement ranges are so short that, uh, yeah, it's it's the battle is essentially out of human control at this point. It's really coming down to gunnery officers and individual turrets mm-hmm. are making their own decisions about where they're shooting at and, and so forth. It's yeah. a mess. As this tragedy unfolds, Cushing is still in the lead, such as it is. Uh, and it's now in the middle of the Japanese formation. Yeah. She's rapidly engaging targets when she is blasted by shell fire from a number of enemy ships. God knows who or when or where or how many. Uh, as she is hit, battleship Hiei, that they knew, well, they didn't know Hiei, but they knew battle wagons were in the formation. But yet, as yet, to my knowledge, nobody had actually visually laid eyes on these beasts it's cushing that that makes the first report that hey you know there's a, a freaking battleship ahead of me for christ's sakes yeah that report goes over tbs and it's it's like a thunder clap through the american formation that you know anybody who didn't know that there's battleships there you know they're guess here. what they're here yeah. and that that again is one of those moments where there's guys who probably didn't know that there were battle wagons there you you had to there's you, you there's that's a pucker moment yeah, for sure. And then what ends up happening as far as the Japanese are concerned is Hie now starts collecting Godzilla-sized helpings of American firepower. Yeah. Um, her superstructure is going to be set on fire relatively early in this engagement. And one of the American crewmen also you know, makes the, uh, the comment that Hie looks like the largest man-made object I've ever seen. Uh, you know, these ships... Hie and Kirishima begin uh, taking on just outsized importance in this battle because they're illuminated by their own fires, particularly in Hie's case. And also Hie is illuminating with her searchlights. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that makes her a beacon. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, she just she starts now collecting, as I say, you know, everybody is shooting at her. Yeah, she's kind of she, she's the reverse <laughs> of the Atlanta for the Japanese formation. Yeah. So as Cushing gets pounded she drifts to a halt she eventually does go down uh laffy uss laffy not the one that's in south carolina let's be abundantly clear here uss laffy is now in the quote lead unquote <laughs> if there is a lead she almost collides with he because they're that yes. close. yeah I mean, literally almost colli- like yeah now we're talking spitball distance yeah that yeah some of the crewmen i believe commented that you know they they probably could have jumped onto Hiei if they had wanted to. Mm-hmm. So 
And when one naturally thinks of a destroyer, certainly against a battleship, you think of torpedoes. This is the time. But it ain't because they're so damn close, they can't even arm. They won't arm. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be within, I believe, 500 yards uh, is the arming distance. And I could be wrong on that, but it's, (laughs) yeah, we're too close for that at this point. And furthermore, you know, as far as the Americans are concerned, their their torpedoes don't work. Mm -hmm. They don't know that. But, you know, the fusing problems that we're having on American submarine torpedoes at this time are it's this is essentially the same beast that that is giving American submariners fits. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the American destroyermen don't know that, that Mm -hmm. their torpedoes basically are ineffective. Yeah, they're garbage. They're trash. If if one explodes, it's like, hey, yeah, look look at that. Go buy a lottery ticket. Yeah. Meanwhile, of course, the Japanese uh, have the finest torpedo in the world. Uh, you know, the type 93 is, is very efficacious and a number of American warships are going to collect their own, uh, collector's edition long lands this evening. And, uh, the results are going to be pretty disastrous. Uh, I believe Atlanta gets hit by one. Juno certainly does. Mm-hmm. Um, Portland collects one as well that knocks mm-hmm. her for a loop and Barton gets hit by two that, you know, just blow her to kingdom come like right now. So, yeah, the, the long lance proves its lethality in this particular engagement. So this is one of those rare naval surface battles in which it's not only the guys in turrets that are loading and firing their weapons. So, I mean, you got on Lafayette, you got five inch guns on Atlanta, you got five inch guns, you got eight, eight inch guns on the American heavy cruisers. It's not just those guys that are and those guys for the most part, unless they're local control, which is rare, uh, aren't pulling triggers that are loading. But regardless yeah. of this, there's guy, there are guys that, you know, when you man battle stations, when you go to GQ, there are anti-aircraft gunners that day or night, Absolutely. they go to their anti-aircraft station and you got 1.1s, you got 20 millimeters, in some cases, water-cooled 50 caliber machine guns, like on yes, USS sir. Juno, she still had water-cooled 50s that are yeah yeah we're in easy range for all of those weapons and we are using them the japanese are doing the same um Mm -hmm. you know yeah so there's again because of the incredibly compressed nature of this battlefield there are weapons being employed that would never be employed in a surface Mm -hmm. action so there's a lot of anti-aircraft gunfire being you know foisted around and frankly in these sort of you know rapid fire snapshot kind of engagements um, being able to bring to bear some one ones or 20 millimeter, you know, that's a lot of firepower on the opposing, uh, ship. It may not do anything to their hull or to their armor, but you can make, you can make life really miserable for anybody who's exposed on a superstructure. Yep. Absolutely. There, there was an account and I, I want to say his name was Hartney, Joseph Hartney. I did not know the man, but I've read the account, and I'm fairly certain it was him, uh, on USS Juno, who was manning one of the water-cooled 50-caliber machine guns on Juno. Mm -hmm. And as they passed within 50-caliber range of Hiei, he visually sighted in on Japanese sailors that were at their gun position and just let them have everything he had. Yeah. Yeah. That's how close this is. Yeah. You you can see in this inky blackness, now granted, Hiei is lit up like a friggin' bonfire and you know you could yes. see her miles away but still that's yeah. how close this thing is going down yep it does go down so so much so that that he takes so much individual fire not just five inch and eight inch and all this other stuff but 20 millimeter 50 caliber 1.1 that admiral abe takes shrapnel to his face now whether yes. that's you know 
machine gun yeah, we, ammunition god knows you know yeah we don't know but it the situation on the bridge of hie at this point is very chaotic uh abe's chief of staff is killed outright uh hie's captain is wounded abe is wounded so it's it's clear that being in the superstructure of a battleship during this engagement is not a healthy place to be um that yeah hie is is being shot at by everybody and their brother yeah uh, to that end, um, Callahan after, and this is all going down within seconds, minutes of, you know, Atlanta getting shot by San Francisco, you know, Laffey lighting up Hie with her machine guns. Callahan issues, you know, his, his ceasefire owned ships order all within this. We're talking five mess. minutes, you know, maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah. some, some ships obey that order. Other ships do not. Um, because at this point, you know, it's it's like you said, John, it's it's individual skippers are in charge of their own vessels right now, and you're fighting yes. for survival. So if they got yes. a target in their crosshairs, if they got a target in their rangefinder, rather, they're gonna we're shoot. shoot at. Yeah, we're, we're shooting at it. Check fire my ass. You know, we're gonna, yeah, not happening. Yeah, not happening. No. Helena. Now, this is the first time we've really talked about Helena really letting loose um in this particular event. Helena opens fire on Hie and and you and I were talking about this via email, you know, that maybe she should have been more of a wrecking ball for this particular mm -hmm. particular event, because like you said, and you're hundred percent right. She was built for this kind of close in lead slinging action. Yeah. She, she lights up Hie's superstructure. I got the figures down here. Yeah. She fires over 200 rounds within a minute ish ish. <laughs> Which is just, it should, it's absurd. It's nuts. It's yeah. nuts. Yeah. And that's yeah. not machine gun ammunition. This is six-inch shell fire. Six-inch shells. I can't even fathom that, man. Yeah. Well, you know, and there are numerous instances throughout this war. Um, you know, some of her close sisters are used at places like Anzio and are being used against German uh, armored attacks, for instance. You know, you think about you know, how much firepower that represents and how quickly these ships, because again, we've got power loading going on here, which is mm -hmm. something that, you know, most land-based six-inch weapons do not have. And so, yeah, these ships can put out a lot of firepower. Similar instance, in a little over a month, there's going to be a naval battle fought in the Barents Sea up north of Norway, where a pair of British six-inch cousins to these ships, if you will, are going to you know bring the hammer down on the German cruiser Hipper, uh, and it's the same thing. They just these six inch cruisers just have the ability to just bury an opponent under an avalanche of six inch shells in very short order. So you know two hundred rounds from Helena, yeah, that's that's what we built her for. My God, though, two hundred six yeah. inch shells ish, Oof. in you know sixty plus seconds, and and then that's not she doesn't just do it for a minute. Right. She keeps letting loose yeah. and just, I, he, he is superstructure had to have been like a, just a, cheese. Yeah. Well, not just that it, it had to have been, you know, like a slaughterhouse. I mean, it had yeah. to be because, yeah. you know, a, the, the fleshy part, if you will, of a battleship is the superstructure. If, if, yeah. if they have one up, you know, one part of their stuff, that's one, one part of the structure that's above water. That's yes. the tender part. It's the superstructure. And, yeah. you know, this goes back to your or Hone's theory that, you know, this was Callahan's plan all the time. Because if you look, 
he uh, not he Helena, Atlanta, Juno, San Francisco, they're all firing into that tender meat until they get yeah. like super, super, super close. Yeah. Trying to set that sucker on fire and kill as many right. people as they absolutely can. Which yep. do we know the casualty figures on Hie? I could find them. Yeah, I don't have them handy to hand. And of course, it all gets blurry, you know, with the yeah. way that she gets sunk later sure. on the next morning. So, you know, yeah, we don't know what those casualty figures were in the night engagement. They had to be substantial. Yeah. And you have to remember, too, that um, all of that gunfire isn't doing anything to Hiei's watertight integrity. It's not doing anything to her right. main armament. But all of her fire control instrumentation is up in that superstructure, not only for the main guns, but also the secondaries and the anti-aircraft weapons as well. Also, her searchlights and, of course, her command personnel are up in that squishy part, too, and they are squishy themselves. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, I think if you step back and you think big picture, and this is why I'm going to argue that Callahan's battle plan is is effective, such as it was. The only way the Americans can win this battle is they have to change Abe Hiroaki's mind. You know, he has to be persuaded that his bombardment mission cannot be successful. And I think the most efficacious way to do that is to place him into an incredibly chaotic you know, situation that he can't make heads or tails of. He ends up getting wounded in the course of this engagement. And the other thing that we have to do is uh, demonstrably damage his flagship, inflict significant damage on it. We're already doing that to her superstructure. And now very shortly, we're about to do it to her main hull. So let's, I think we should get to that. That's what we're getting to now. San Francisco and Portland with their eight inch guns, specifically Frisco are pulling into range now to where they can unleash those eight inch AP shells directly into the hull of Hie, and they're going to penetrate. And yeah. it's important to note that at range, I said, you know, if, if Norman Scott was in charge, he, I would like to think he wouldn't have engaged at range because of the fact that the United States did not possess a vessel in this battle that had shell power to penetrate a battleship's belt armor at range, keyword at range. Right. If you're up close, you know, a, you can put a hole in just about anything if you're close enough and you got something with enough oomph behind it. And these eight right. inch rifles on these U.S. Navy heavy cruisers have yep. that oomph. They've got oomph. And the, the belt armor on both of these battleships is only eight inch belt armor. Um, and the some of the, the compartments at the extreme ends of the hull are not necessarily uh, fully armor protected either. But now that we're down to engagement ranges of 2,200 yards in the case of uh, San Francisco, now those eight-inch rifles, as you say, have got the oomph to start making a difference. And that's exactly what ends up happening. Uh, San Francisco unloads on Hie at that distance and punches a pair of holes into uh, Hie's steering compartment and jams her rudders. And that now, again, if we're trying to affect Admiral Abe's mind, now my flagship is out of control. It's I can't crippled. necessarily, yeah. it's crippled. I'm, I can't really steer her effectively. And the end result is that I believe it's at 0203 Abe, you know, which is now what, 13 minutes into this engagement, uh, Abe radios Yamamoto, I am aborting my bombardment mission. So 
you know, the Americans have essentially mission killed this battleship and have forced Abe to change his mind and abort his mission. Mm-hmm. That's a win. Yeah, that is most certainly a win. You came, yeah. you did what you came here to do. Right. But it ain't over. Uh, it ain't over. <laughs> <laughs> no. And now, yeah. and now it's time to, you know, now a lot of these American ships, it's time to pay the piper. Yep. Okay. You've, you've gotten to within range of these Japanese battleships. You know, good news is that we changed Abe's mind. Bad news, we're really close to a pair of Japanese battleships and all of their friends. And so, yeah, now bad things begin happening to uh, uh, to Callahan's flagship as well. Yeah, and that, and that's the thing that, to note is that as you're trying to get in close and you get in close and you shoot, well, you got to get away. Right. And if you're getting away, what happens? The range opens. So those 14-inch right. naval rifles that were unable to depress to shoot you because you were so friggin' close well yeah. as you're peeling away they can shoot you now guess what <laughs> yeah and they do just that very thing uh, frisco gets just, just blasted blasted frisco yeah. takes i believe a grand total of 45, 45. major major caliber hits above the waterline mm-hmm. although when we say above the waterline that might be you know six inches above the waterline um and so, yeah, she's getting hit by by 14-inch fire for sure, and also a healthy dose of 6-inch from Nagara and 5-inch uh, um, from the destroyers. Actually, Nagara is 5.5-inch, but yeah, we'll, we won't go there. Um, and she's in a world of hurt. Uh, yeah. What ends up happening is now she's flooding above her armor deck. And this is bad because she's shipping, I believe, more than 500 tons of water is above San Francisco's armored deck, which is not what you want from a stability standpoint, because it means that it's relatively high in the ship structure. You want it as low as possible, and that's not where it is right now. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, of course, she ends up getting clobbered in her bridge mm-hmm. as well. Yep. And some of those salvos end up killing Callahan his entire staff, the captain of San Francisco, Cass and Young, the XO, uh, the navigator, I believe, is so badly wounded that, you know, they think he's dead. Uh, mm-hmm. He ends up down in a gun tub in the five-inch tubs down yeah, a couple of decks. overboard, uh, over right. the bridge, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's Enter that, Bruce McCandless. Yep. It's that third salvo from from Hie is the one that that's the the – the meat grinder and Bruce McCandless, who is a Lieutenant commander. He is uh, at this point, he's the only surviving officer. Well, that we know of the only surviving officer on the bridge. He is basically the only man there to do anything in terms of command at all aboard San Francisco. At this moment, there's one man senior to him. Who is the DC officer, damage control officer, oh, by right. the name of Commander? Or actually, at this time, he's Lieutenant, still Lieutenant Commander Herbert Scotland. Scotland yeah. is again kind of like the Callahan Scott thing. He's only a few days senior, but regardless of this, McCandless gets a hold of Scotland and says, "Hey, you're the man in charge. What 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 do you want me to do?" And Scotland essentially says. I got enough to take care of. You take uh, control of the situation. I, I, I'm I'm real busy trying to keep the keel of this particular ship pointing down rather than mm-hmm. up. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it's your baby. I forget 
you know, Rich Frank tells this story when he and I lecture for the Naval War College together. And I think that McCandless is something like 38th in seniority. If you look at the the total rank, you know, of all the officers in this American formation, he's he's well down in the batting order. But as you say, he is the only guy standing on the bridge of this shattered cruiser, which also happens to be the flagship of this formation. And he knows that, you know, as goes the flagship, so the the ships that are behind me are, are probably going to follow in my wake. I am slewing out of line at this point, having taken this damage. I need to turn the bow of this ship back into the formation here to continue fighting, thereby demonstrating to the ships that are behind me that we're still in this battle. Mm-hmm. So... You know, he makes the decision to tell the the helmsman, who is like the only other guy that's alive on the bridge, you know, turn your wheel over and we got to keep heading north for the time being, at least. Yeah. And that 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 is a one of the most heroic things that incredibly that, gutsy. Yeah, it, it's ridiculous. Yeah. B, it it does keep the the pressure on the Japanese, at least for a little while here. Yeah. And this is not the last time that San Francisco gets hit in this. And she's still taking a pound. And now, granted, she's kind of veering away. And Japanese ships are starting to focus on other targets at this moment. Yeah. But it's just, you know, if you think about it, the medals of honor that were issued on San Francisco because of this, Scanlon gets it, McCandless gets it. Um, and and, and I want to talk about it. I want to talk about Scanlon a little bit because it's it's. The situation is so scary from a damage control perspective at this point. I mean, San Francisco is in dire danger of capsizing outright, again, because of all this water that's that is sitting on her on her second deck. And Scotland um ends up making the decision. He gets on the talker to the engineering spaces and he says, Boys, you know, put your bilge pumps on full blast because I am going to open the you know the pipes between your engineering spaces and and this second deck and you're going to receive yeah a lot of water um and but that's the only place those bilge pumps represent the only pumping capacity that is sufficient to dewater this ship and get this out of here so not only does he do that but then as soon as he you know opens up those hatches he climbs down into the engineering spaces himself and is in chest deep water doing damage control down in the engineering spaces. So again, at tremendous risk to his own life, because if this ship goes belly up, he's not in a good oh, yeah. position. Um, so, you know, yeah, I, I can't really think of another, uh, another ship that ends up getting three medals of honor in the course of, of one engagement let alone one of those medals of honor going to the damage control officer. I mean, that's mm-hmm. something that you don't see a lot of, no. but he is just as key to the survival of the ship as McCandless is to the survival of this battle. You know, and, and we talk about the, the physical survival and obviously, you know, San Francisco does survive. Um, there's a lot, there's some famous footage that I'll show that, that San Francisco pulls into San Francisco after the battle. And, you know, if you look at the DC, uh, the damage report pictures, it literally looks like a piece of Swiss cheese. Yeah, it's it's incredible. Crazy. It's yeah. incredible the beating that this thing took. And that New Orleans class cruiser, which is what San Francisco is, if you look at what happened at the ships at Savo, 
and you look at what happens to like New Orleans later on at Tassafaranga, they were not exactly the toughest vessels afloat. Mm-hmm. American heavy cruiser, but they too, like Atlanta and Juno, they also have a glass jaw, and that is their bow. They can lose yeah. their bows seemingly, you know, all the time. Yeah, you, right. We, you know, we both worked on the Petrol series, um, and the underwater footage of the four cruisers sunk at uh, Savo. None of them have oh the three American cruisers. None of them have their bows. Mm-hmm. You know, their bows break off, and it's it's frankly it's by a stroke of luck that San Francisco doesn't take a few more shots in the bow because she ain't coming out as she does. Oh, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, yeah. If she loses her bow at this point, that probably yeah, is totally. the kiss of death. Yeah, but it's something else to think about too. Is the the physical survival survival of the ship? But it's she's taking a lot of human casualties, man. There's a lot of American sailors that are killed on USS San Francisco. And, you know, you can say that, you know, had the Japanese battleships been shooting AP at San Francisco, which I believe one of the salvos, one of the final salvos is AP that hits her. You know, she would have been blown out of the water, blah, 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 blah. But there's probably more casualties inflicted on the American sailors aboard Frisco because of the fact that they're firing basically, yeah, HE incendiary frag shells for bat, for lack of a better term because when those things hit yeah they're punching holes but they're also sending metal all over god's creation yeah right and they're they're just cutting american sailors down you know as if yeah it's a bloodbath yeah with a laser beam just taking out everything yep. in their path so it's the the human casualties on frisco are probably higher because they're firing he as opposed to the AP. yeah that's an interesting point i hadn't thought about that either but no I, I think nasty. you make a good point it's nasty but, man you know again it, it also points out just how good American damage control is. I mean, with all due respect to the Royal Navy, no other Navy in the world at this point has, has anything on the U S Navy when it comes to to DC, we just do it hands down better than anybody else does. A lot of that has to do with obviously a lot of practice, but we also have things like these portable gasoline powered pumps, handy billies um, and that sort of things. We're really good at dewatering our ships um, and our, our crews are just superbly well-trained in this kind of stuff. And it, and it pays off in these sorts of battles, particularly for a ship like San Fran. Well, it saves her. It's, it's, yeah. she's, that's the reason that she's, you know, makes it to San Francisco Harbor yeah. because of that. So at this point, as this just barroom brawl is, is, is going down, this is when Juno enters the fray, USS Juno, yeah. this is Atlanta's sister. Um, you know, she gets up so close to Hiei, like I was telling you about before. You know, they light her up with 50 caliber gunfire, for Christ's sakes. At one point, she engages a Japanese destroyer. I do not remember. I have Harasame as my target. And honestly, Christ who knows. knows. And, and, and yeah. honestly, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, she opens up on this thing. They trade gunfire back and forth. And at some point here in the next few seconds or so, she absorbs a torpedo that theoretically was aimed at USS San Francisco. So she takes a torpedo damn near amidships. I mean, yeah, almost like, dead center. Right. And it it it's just it's a long lance, obviously, and it just eviscerates the inside. Just, of this thing. That's exactly the word that you use when when you're hitting a ship that small with a torpedo that big. And again, you know, this particular torpedo, it's it's the largest torpedo in the world. It's a 24-inch diameter torpedo, and it carries a 1,080-pound warhead. This thing, you know, you you get hit by one of these things, and it is a real wake-up call. And yeah, against gonna... a, 
Yeah, against a fifty-five hundred ton warship like like Juno, it just yeah, it wrecks her, and it, it it pretty clearly has caused significant damage to her keel, probably mm-hmm. broken her back. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she's she's out of the fight pretty much right now. The the theory is is that that first torpedo hit from that Japanese destroyer, I don't know if it necessarily breaks her keel, but it certainly fractures it to a point to where. Because the few survivors, and we'll get to this story in a minute, but the few survivors that make it off of June or make it out of the water, uh, you know, reported that that stern end of that ship was vibrating and basically doing one of these numbers as yeah. they're going through the water, and yeah. there was no structural stability there. Or very Correct. Little. And it's yeah. the only thing holding that the ass end of that ship on is the hull plating that was above it. That's, That's correct. It. That is it. Yeah, the keel's toast. Yeah, yeah, yeah she's just taking a pounding. All right, so Juno takes a torpedo, um, almost dead center midships, theoretically fractures and or breaks her keel. She's structurally unstable. She does limp away, and it's not long after this, and it's not that Juno causes them to to call the battle, if you will, but it's not long after Juno starts to limp away that Gilbert Hoover now is the senior officer afloat in the Americas. Callahan is dead. Scott is dead. Scanland and 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 uh, McCandless aboard yeah, San Francisco don't have any tactical control over. All they're trying to do is keep their ship afloat and yes. get the hell out of there. So Gilbert Hoover at this point says, "You know what? I think we're done." Yeah, and he decides to pull his people out of there. Um, that's at zero two two six is the, is right. the time that. Gilbert so this Hoover, this battle has been going a little over half an hour, right? Um, and, it, and at this point too. You know, both formations have been blown to the winds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Japanese, of course, with Abe having given uh, his order at 0203, you know, that we're trying to get out of Dodge. You've got these two intertangled formations that are now trying to, you know, peel out. The Japanese are basically heading off to the northwest and around the northern uh, tip of Savoy Island to get out of the sound. The Americans are heading off to the east. But these two formations are still intermingled, and so there's shooting going on as as right. they're trying to disengage as well. Right. So Abe he he is sharply criticized by yeah. Admiral Yamamoto, and you mentioned Kondo too. Kondo as oh. well. Kondo at this point is the admiral afloat. As I say, mm-hmm. he's up north um, on board his his flagship and he's got that pair of battleships with him. So yeah, both both Kondo and Yamamoto are very unhappy with Abe at this point, to the point that he is going to be forcibly retired in early 1943. Do we know what happens to Abe after this? Uh, he's yeah, he's done. He just he just goes away. He goes away. Yeah. He's yeah. never recalled to service. Um, mm-hmm. I, I forget when he when he passes, but yeah, his war is over as a result of this battle. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you could make from Yamamoto's perspective, you could I could understand why he, you know, essentially crucifies Abe because of this, because Karishima is essentially untouched. I mean, she does take a few yeah. rounds, but she's Nothing still major. no, I mean, she's still ready to rock and roll, as we will see in you know yeah. 24 hours. But um, you know. But he also ain't there. <laughs> he doesn't. He hasn't seen the mess that that Abe yeah. has seen. So, yeah, you know, such as it is. At at o three forty four, 
Yamamoto radios Tanaka or issues orders to Tanaka to turn his troop convoy, troop slash supplies slash food slash whatever yeah. around and head back to the Shortlands. So this event here, this chaotic barroom brawl, melee, you know, fist fight in the dark, whatever you want to call it, by the Americans led by Callahan actually does accomplish what they're there to do at an extremely high cost. Yes. But the Japanese troop convoy is turned around for now. Um, the surface bombardment force is turned around for now. And, you know, things are looking up somewhat on the bright side as, as the battle is starting to fade into the distance. Karishima gets out of the, she gets out of Dodge, but he, as you had mentioned, she takes hits in her engineering spaces. You know, she's still burning like a friggin' Roman candle. Yeah. And she is limping away. They're trying to get her out of there, but they don't have enough time because the sun rises early in the Pacific in November. And with the sun rises, when the sun rises, so do American aircraft off of Henderson yep. Field, which of course, ironically enough, is the target or was the target for the Japanese battleships that were coming down. And Hiei becomes a magnet yeah. for these American aircraft. She's, she's the biggest thing that a lot of these pilots have ever seen. And, uh, you know, intriguingly, too, we actually do have uh, torpedo aircraft on the island. And, you know, nothing like a, a battleship trying to limp home at, I forget what her speed is, but it ain't great. It's four or five knots. You know, so yeah, she's she's just a punching bag, mm. and uh, that's what ends up happening throughout the morning as various uh, sorties of American aircraft go after her and just beat beat the bejesus out of her. Various sorties. It's fifty six. That's a lot of planes. Fifty six sorties. Yeah, split almost down the middle between SBDs and Avengers as well as 14 B-17s all come into and try and lay a lick on this thing. Yeah. She is not sunk per se. The theory is she was scuttled. You know, they opened up the, uh, the Seacocks. And Thank you. The Seacocks. And, and they, they, they scuttle her cause she ain't getting out of there. She's not getting out of there. I mean, if you lose steering control and they were unable to restore it. Um, and, and you, you know, this is a thing that we've seen in multiple engagements throughout this war. I mean, it's the same problem that Bismarck suffers from. You know, if your steering gear is verschnooked and your divers can't do anything about it in those flooded spaces, well, you know, you ain't got a warship, you got a target. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening with HEA here as well. So, yeah, after, after she takes a pounding, uh, from the air, the Japanese make the decision to take her crew off and, and scuttle her. Mm -hmm. And this She's is the, the first battleship lost in this war by the Japanese. Yep. And not the last. Not the last. So the final tally is absolutely terrifying. It's horrific, frankly. The Japanese lose one battleship, which, of course, we just said is Hiei, two destroyers. Yep. And four destroyers are damaged. Yep. Between five and 800 men are killed in action. And that's a lot of guys and that's a lot of ships, but it's nothing compared to the United States, who are, by the way, the victors in this event. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> I swear to God. Right. Two light cruisers and four destroyers are sunk. And I said two light cruisers because Atlanta does go down. Yeah. And Juno, as we see, also becomes a victim uh, of, of Japanese munitions. Um, yeah. 
Two heavy cruisers are damaged. This is Portland and San Francisco, and two destroyers are damaged as well. 1,439 American sailors are killed in action. Yeah. 1,400, the majority of which are on USS Juno because as the sun rises, Juno is limping away, fractured keel and all. She is limping away. She is making steam. They had some power restored to some of her turrets. Uh, I believe one of her after after five-inch gun turrets had local power restored. She had somewhat some ability to fire, but uh, to fight, but she certainly didn't want to get into any kind of fight in, in the shape that she was in. Captain Lyman Swinson has got her making way. They're heading at best possible speed to Espirito Santo when over the horizon looms what's left of the American task force. Juno actually catches up with them, believe it or not. Um, she pulls up alongside USS San Francisco, the flagship. That is in her own right beaten to a bloody pulp. Yeah. And she slides, Juno slides in alongside San Francisco and takes up station. She's keeping up. And I mean, and at, at this point, it does look like Juno and San Francisco and everybody else in this small battered task force is going to make it home. There yeah. really, there's no reason to believe that they won't until literally all of a sudden. At least three that we know of torpedoes are fired by a Japanese submarine at USS San Francisco. And this is the second time in less than 12 hours that USS Juno sucks takes, up a torpedo that was takes meant for one for the team. Yeah. Right. And initially it was thought that two torpedoes hit Juno, but especially after analyzing direct footage, it's thought that really only one, this, I guess it would be the second one. The first one was fired by destroyer. This one's fired by a submarine. But it's literally the worst place this thing could hit. It, it It is believed that the Japanese torpedo enters the same wound that was opened up by the long lance the night before. Yeah. And, and when the torpedo hits an already structurally unstable vessel and then, oh, by the way, detonates within her five-inch gun powder magazine, yeah. the ship is gone. Yeah, it just blows to pieces. Yeah. It just it just it disintegrates, you know. Yeah. All of the hood, all of, you know, the barum, you know, yeah. Just kaboom. I mean to the to the point that yeah, uh Captain Hoover on Helena doesn't believe that there is any possibility that there could be anybody left alive in the water as a result of that. Yeah. Which is a dreadful mistake. Horrible mistake. And and you know, you gotta how, how big were they? She was about what 500 foot long 400 foot long i, I forget how big yeah, did you know 500 was? something like that she, she was pretty good size ship good, yeah good and size the the there, there's a report there's there's an account i should say of uh, a helmsman on uss san francisco looking at his counterpart aboard juno they were sending semaphore back and forth when the helmsman aboard san francisco literally sees the helmsman aboard juno fly through the air to quote him as if snatched by the hand of God. The ship is going like that. And yeah. to your point, after seeing that explosion, or at the very least hearing it, Captain Hoover on Helena, already nursing a sick task force, says there's no way anybody survived that. Pour on the coal. Let's get the hell out of here. Yeah. Years after the event, and actually during the war hoover was crucified for that decision because there were survivors of 100 in the war yeah yeah 100 yeah. exactly 
And the, the, the argument can be made that he should have stayed around. He should have at the very least deployed two destroyers, one of which was Fletcher that was undamaged, by the way. That, that's that's my argument, too, that at the very least, you have to deploy a destroyer to yeah. you know, go back and take a look-see. Or, uh, or deal with the submarine. Right? Well, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the other thing you can do absolutely is prosecute this boat and at least keep its head down long enough that that you can assess what the situation is. But instead, yeah, they just they just get out of Dodge disastrous situation for the guys in the water. I forget how long they float. You would know. It's five days. Yeah. Which nice. in, I think it's longer than that. Yeah. In in the Solomons, you know, this is hot. The water is hot. The sun is hot. A lot of the guys that are in the water from Juno are are burned um in, in many cases coated with fuel oil. Uh so they're they're injured too. You know, this is not a good environment to uh, to stay alive multiple days in the water. No, and the, the ones that survive when the ship goes down, most of those guys, well, when it goes down, when it explodes, yeah. most of the guys that do survive were on the stern of the ship. Mm. Um, and some of them were gunners, a lot of them were gunners that were top side. Uh, they were in their gun positions, and then boom, they're either blown out of those gun positions or the ship sucks them down and they just miraculously pop free. Pop yeah. And like you said, there's over, I think there's, I think there was 100 and 102, 103 guys in the water. The vast majority of them, as you said, John, are, are horribly wounded because they took a lick in the night before. Yeah. And this massive explosion, I mean, there's not going to be many guys that are going to survive that without being scraped up at the very least. Yeah. And they're bobbing in the water for days. You know, there's no fresh water. Um, there are shark attacks. How many shark attacks occur? You know, God knows. Nobody knows. God knows. You know, and the the tragic thing, it's, it's, it's very reminiscent of USS Indianapolis. And if Bill was on this episode, I know that's exactly what he would say. Yeah. That they're, you know, they're eventually sighted by a couple of B-17s that fly over, waggle their wings, and we're like, hey, buddy, you know, we see you. But nobody comes to get them. It's, you know, it's criminal. Yeah, it, just, it really is. Particularly for a military that throughout this campaign will demonstrate that it's extremely good at things like search and rescue. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the reasons that we win the air battle over this island is we're really good at plucking pilots out of the water that go down, you know, up the slot. So I, I just don't understand it. It's incomprehensible to me that these guys floated in the water for as long as they did without rescue it's just it's criminal but by the, yeah yeah i mean by the time they do and they obviously do get rescued but by the time they do get rescued 10 guys come out of the water yeah 10 yeah it's and you know obviously a number of the guys that went in the water that were alive no matter when they got pulled sure. out if it was now or five minutes from now you know they're 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 not gonna make it through but of course famously um, you know, the, the, the Sullivans, uh, lose five, five brothers from a single family all go down on board Juno. We know that one of them at least made it into the water alive. I believe it's the eldest brother. Isn't that it right? It was George. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. So, and he had survived. He was, uh, they say unwounded, but I mean, yeah. you know, who knows? But, but the thing was, is that he had survived up until the day before that they were rescued. Uh, he, much like a lot of the guys, was dying of thirst, literally, yeah. literally dying of thirst, you know, massively dehydrated, sunburned, all to hell and gone, and was starting to lose it. 
Like, you know, yeah. he, he, the, you know, the reports from the few to 10 survivors say that, you know, he was just anguished over the, because it was apparent that, you know, his brothers were gone. Yeah. And he would cry out to them in the middle of the night, you know, and go off. And he was know, swimming, swimming around, around the, you know, the various clots of men floating in the water to see if any of his siblings are left alive. And no, it's, right. It, you're right. He, it's obvious to him after a few days that, yeah, my four brothers are all gone. Yeah. Yeah, and it's the the story goes is that he he was on one of the floating net rafts and or hanging on to the side, and at one point he says, "Hey, you know what? I'm I'm going to go down to I'm going to go down below decks. So I can see the ship. I'm going to go take a shower." Right. He's he's clearly he's yeah. he's not he's cool. here anymore, and he swims away. And as he disappears into the darkness, you know they hear screams and slat you know water splashing. It's assumed that he's attacked by a shark. And that's right. it. He's gone. That's it. Done. He's gone. Yeah. It, it's one of the huge tragedies, uh, U.S. Navy tragedies of World War II. And I mean, again, you could lay blame on Hoover. He should have, I agree with you, he should have at least tried to deploy U.S., you know, detach USS Fletcher to deal with that submarine because Fletcher's yeah. undamaged. Yes. And, and at the very least, try and pick some guys up out of the water or hang around to see what the hell's going on. Right. And even then, when he does get back to port, you know, he kind of lollygags getting word back that, oh, yeah, by the way, there may be some guys in the water back that you might want to go check it out. Yeah. I mean, it. he certainly could have broken radio silence to at least get a sighting report and, a, a you know, some sort of a briefing. Because, again, we've got assets back in Guadalcanal. It ain't that far away. Right. You could have you could have driven a lighter out that far. I mean, there's. Or there were LA. PBYs there. There were yeah, PBYs there, on Guadalupe. There were PBYs. There were certainly, you know, various small craft that would have been available. Come on, dude. Um, yeah. So I, I am generally a fairly forgiving person by nature, but I, yeah, I just, I, I just can't see any reason why he failed as badly as he did, and I just, I just find it unforgivable. It, it, it is one of the tragedies because, as a combat officer, he was very effective. Like he was, Helena yep. was a good ship, right? You know, and it was due to his, well, obviously the crew, but it was also due to his leadership. So he was right. a good, highly skilled, competent combat officer. And yeah. this like screws the rest of his career, man. I mean, he's, he's not court-martialed for this, but you don't ever hear anything about Gilbert Hoover again for the rest of the no, life. No, no. I mean, you know, word gets around, now, doesn't it? Yeah. And and this is actually one of the lessons that I think you take away from just naval combat in general. I mean, you look at the hood blowing up and you wouldn't have believed that there could have been anybody left and alive in the water, but there were. Mm -hmm. You know, the bottom line is that 99 times out of 100, no matter how terrible the damage to the ship is, there's usually somebody left alive in the water that survives it. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. Well, well, that's a that's an uplifting note, isn't it? To be ending on is 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 Juno uh, again, kind of pulling it back to the the big picture at this point. Um, the Japanese have been thwarted, but they are not done. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to be you know talking about about them uh, in in the coming podcast. Uh, the Japanese resupply convoy has been turned around temporarily, but they are not done. They are going to be bringing it. Uh, south again because they're determined to run these supplies into Guadalcanal. So now yep. things are really are really coming to uh, a bad juncture for the Americans because with yes the victory of Callahan's force 
resulted in the destruction of Callahan's force. And now there are very, very precious few assets left for the Americans uh, to shove into the middle of the table at this point if they want to protect these waters. Specifically, there's there's really two. Yeah. There's really, and I mean, I'm not, you know, da, da, da. no, I mean, there's, yeah. there's, there's really, really, there are two vessels that Admiral Halsey can send orders to, to say, okay, I need you people to go off the shore of Guadalcanal because, oh, guess what? The Japanese, yeah, yeah we thought we're, they were done. They ain't done. They ain't done. They're coming so, back. There's so the that, teaser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what what do they say? They said that uh, November 13th, you know, Friday the 13th was the barroom brawl, but November the 14th was yeah. the night known as the night that the Giants rode across Iron Bottom Sound. Right. So we'll, we'll get to that. It's actually two from now because there's a, right. there's a right. cruiser bombardment here in the middle, but right. yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyway. The big guns are coming. The, the big, big guns, guns are, are coming. coming. Well, John, you got anything else you want to throw into no. the mix here? This is, this is great fun. I mean, for as horrible a battle as it is, but uh, yeah, it really is. Uh, also a very dramatic fight. And as I say, it, it's kind of fun to write about um, just because I, I don't have to be as AR about my maps as I typically am. Because again, it's just this surrealist collage, you know, of, of an engagement. Really, really interesting. Take some spaghetti noodles and throw them on a plate. And there you have your track chart. <laughs> there you got it. Yeah, that's, that's it. pretty much it. It would probably so, be pretty accurate too. Yeah, yeah, it would be. <laughs> <laughs> no less accurate than pretty much anything else anybody could come up with. So nope, not at all. Well, with that, we want to thank you for listening in on our conversation. Please subscribe to the unauthorized history of the Pacific war podcast, wherever you receive your podcast, give us a rating and review. We certainly do appreciate it. Also, if you want to see the video version of this and any of our other episodes, subscribe to our YouTube channel called the unauthorized history of the Pacific war podcast. Also look us up on Facebook, like, and subscribe to our page there as well. Also, uh, just a quick note, we are contemplating the idea of doing a live show uh, so you, the listener, can ask us uh, some questions and some of our guests, if, if John would be willing to participate, uh, live. So if you are interested in doing something like this, uh, send us an email or at unauthorizedpacificpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a comment on our YouTube channel or Facebook or whatever. There's multiple ways to get a hold of us. Just let us know. Let us know what you think. Uh, so once again, with that, uh, my name is Seth Perrin, and I want to thank you very much for listening. And I'm going to say thank you for Bill. John, thank you very much for being Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Super fun. Absolutely. And we will meet again when we talk about literally the fight that I've been waiting to talk about since we started this podcast. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the battleship duel. Yeah. So with that, we'll uh we'll see y'all next week. Thank you very much.